0: another video and live stream on this channel. Today, we're joined with my good friend Warren, who is joining us from Shenzhen today. And also, we're going to be talking all things Dostoevsky, Jordan B. Peterson, atheism, and all that cool stuff. So if you're interested, make sure to stay around. And you can ask us questions anytime in the chats and in the comments below. I've also pinned Warren's YouTube channel as well. If you can go and check it out after the stream, He started a new channel talking about crazy stuff like Kafka, Heidegger, and all those crazy stuff. So make sure you go share some love to him by hitting that subscribe button on his channel and help his channel grow as well. So Warren, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks thanks for the promotion. (laughs) Anytime, feel free to promote yourself whenever necessary. And then the next thing is just going to be you giving Ben Shapiro ads for the entire time. The, the Wi Fi was glitching out for a
1: minute. <laughs> <laughs> can, you hear me? can
0: you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Is you it working your, the laughter was okay, glitching okay. and then you could just. And then your your laughter was glitching itself. So it's like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, let's start. Let's start with okay, the Heidegger sure. quotation. Okay. Heidegger says Every thinker thinks only one thought. Here, too thinking differs essentially from science. The researcher needs constantly new discoveries and inspirations, Our science will bog down and fall into error. The thinker needs one thought only. And for the thinker, the difficulty is to hold fast to this one only thought as the one and only thing that he must think. So my question would be, what do you think is, is Dostoevsky's one thought, since, since Dostoevsky's like your favorite? Favorite
0: writer? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think Tostoyevsky's perhaps his favorite thought or his main thought would would undeniably be the thought of Christ, which I think he meditates on throughout his books. The idea of hope and beauty and love through Christ, which I think is his most important idea, and and it's this idea of the human relationship with Christ, which I think is also very important. It's like, well, how does man live, and also how can man live without Christ? And I think that those are the two fundamental questions that. Dostoevsky has in mind when he's writing, and it's a similar theme in Nietzsche as well, I think. And it's the idea of: Do you need Christ, and if Christ does not exist, what is the consequences? Is it nihilism? And and those are that would be his main thoughts relating to Christ, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I was reading uh, Hannah Arndt the other day, and Hannah Arndt also talked about Christ and also in relation to Socrates. So she talked about something like moral propositions cannot be proved. So what can only convince one of the truth of a moral proposition can only be examples. So either of Socrates who who voluntarily uh, gets executed or drinks the hemlock in Athens so he, so he does not betray justice or Christ crucifying on a cross. So I think that, that that's really profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely agree with that because I think that there are times when
0: you, you realize that logic and arguments and Writing essays can only get you so far. I think there's a significant limit to man's ability to directly express himself via words, and and that's why I think that most people they what they would get to or what reaches out to them is more the Bible story than an argument for the existence of God, or perhaps why Dostoevsky might be more attractive to someone than than reading I don't know some essay on. On some ontological, or ontico, ontological <laughs> argument or something like that, and I yeah, think that sorry. the fundamental reason for that is is perhaps because we, in a, in an essay, in a, in like an argument, the logical form, you can you can interact with it with your brain, but you can't interact with it with your soul. You cannot have a relationship with it. But then, in when you have like a story, a novel, or an example, you could really live with it. You could feel the pain of the writer when. When when the children in Dostoevsky's novels are starving, when they're when they're being ripped apart by dogs, or when they're suffering from tuberculosis, like you could you could emphasize, you can feel with those issues, and and the problems are made stronger through these interactions. And I think that's definitely one of the greatest strengths of of literature, and and it really
1: talks about the limits of yeah. our of our language, I think as well. Yeah. I think you're definitely right. That that's one of the better things about the literature. And also, I think related to this, there's also another really interesting Heidegger thought, which he, he says that when you're thinking, you're not necessarily you're not necessarily thinking those thoughts, but the thoughts come over to you, and somehow you're you have to remain open yourself to let to let the thoughts come over instead of constant actively pursuing the thoughts. So in Heidegger's view, these kind of I guess, rational deduction, going from premise A to premise B and introducing the, the logical conclusion wouldn't be called thinking. But this kind of letting an image or a metaphor or a symbol come over to you would be the, the best form of thinking.
0: Yes, I'll definitely agree with that. I think that <clears throat> a lot of times when we're thinking we are very much in a passive seat, you know, like recently I was writing a diary, but then I don't think I can necessarily call it a diary because it's more about me writing about me, analyzing myself (laughs) to give advice for myself in a third person topic, in third person voice talking about myself in the first person. And it's an absolutely very weird diary, which doesn't even follow the dates. Because yesterday when I was writing my diary entry, I had it day one and day two, but technically they're the same day. But because I want to separate the thoughts, I just made them yeah. two separate days. That's why I don't no, even I, put the actual dates on top of them. I just say day one, day two, I just write it like that.
1: I actually <laughs> also started writing a diary recently. But normally it's like after after I've, I've done some exercise, went out for a run or played some badminton, and you know after exercise... You, you, you get all sweaty and you can't go to shower straight away because if, if you go straight to shower, <laughs> when you come out, you're still, still sweaty. Yeah. So I just have to wait there to go to the shower. And I just type on my phone for like 10 minutes on any thought that comes over your mind. And it's, it's actually very strange because somehow after you've done some exercise, like you haven't used your brain for a while, like thoughts come over to you a, a lot easier. So I, think, I think that's really interesting.
0: I think a lot of times we just realize how much of us we're living in the passive voice I mean a lot of times we like to think oh we're actively doing this we're actively choosing things but at the same time just as as strongly or perhaps just as reasonably we are also at the passive seat we're we're laying back we're relaxing and then the thoughts come to us instead of us trying to look for the thoughts it's like and I was trying to analyze my dreams as well recently in the diary and <laughs> And I've learned something. Psychological... <laughs> yes, Have I been am becoming coming to some <laughs> to some extent. Perhaps I perhaps I wouldn't come to the same conclusions of the Oedipus <laughs> complex, but, but I do think that I do think that analyzing your dreams might be uh, is actually quite a profound thing to do, and you really help understand
1: more about yourself. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I've been keeping a dream journal for like six months, and then when you go back when you go back to read those dreams, you're like, oh, what kind of crazy stuff? Have you just, have have I just (laughs) came up? Like once, once I was reading this uh, Hemingway novel, I think A Farewell to Arms. And I wasn't really, I I didn't feel the novel was too good. It was about war and everything. And I found it was mediocre. But then, (laughs) but then like after, after I finished the novel, like two or three days afterwards, I had a dream about the novel. and And I started crying like in the middle of the night after waking up from the dream. And then that's when I realized somehow that Hemingway had something in him. Because Hemingway Hemingway had this iceberg principle, where he he talks about how your your story should be like an iceberg, only show like the top one percent, and then leave the ninety nine percent out. And whatever is left out, the reader can still feel, even though uh, it's not read by him. I think that's one of the things which is so amazing about
0: Dostoevsky. It's like you you have a nine hundred page book, and imagining that being the tip of the iceberg, I. I, I sometimes am afraid how how it, how difficult it must have been for someone like Dostoevsky to have so much information, so much thought in his brain, and and it's like there there seems to be a significant limit, to the, to a physical limit to how much you can express. But at the same time, the body seems at times a weak conduit to the amount of things that are are in your brain, and and that's something that I think is is really the beauty of literature and. And you know, so what was actually really half funny recently, I was dreaming about something and and I realized that, and I wrote it down in my diary and and I was like thinking, okay, well, and recently I've been feeling that I've been descending into some sense of Nietzschean madness. I mean, I definitely didn't start hugging a horse and kissing it on the street, but at the same time, I have to admit that sometimes it does feel a bit like tiring and stressful. and. And I think it actually is between a relationship between our, what we call it, our our ideal and the practical. And I was talking with a friend about it mm-hmm. in school the other day, and it was between about, well, how important is the pragmatic side of life when compared to the ideal side of life? And, and then I was, when I was saying that, I was saying, well, you can't have the practical without the ideal because all actions are based off of a fundamentally ideal structure. But at the same time, you can't, it, it's very difficult to have only being, caught up in the ideals and not acting in the physical which which is perhaps one of the reasons for my apparent growing madness perhaps because i've been dealing for the past one and a half years with the ideal the ideal philosophy these abstract concepts but not really caring about the the concrete so what would your thoughts be on that perhaps about how the ideal and the and the abstract kind of interlink with your life and and
1: how you live out your life i think first of all it's At least, it's very difficult to implement the ideal onto onto life. It's it's sort of uh it's one thing to know to know the concepts, to know the moral laws, to to know Kant, to know the utilitarians, etc. But it's another thing to apply apply those rules onto one's own life. And and I think there's definitely this this gap between what not what you believe, but what you know and what you actually do. And I think there's this Chinese philosophy philosopher. I'm not sure whether you know him. It's Wang Yangming. It's this kind of uh, Ming, uh, like Ming Dynasty guy, and then he talks about this concept of of synthesizing what you know and what you do, and and it's only when it's only when you do what you know that that you, I guess, it's only when you do what you know that you really know something. I think it's a it's a good segue into Jordan Peterson too, about the pragmatic and ideal. In the sense that I think this is where I, I sort of disagree with Jordan Peterson uh, for slightly in that he because he he explains the Bible and a, a lot or, or not lying and these kind of things in a kind of in a biological manner of how morality emerges from rats fighting each other and how uh, and and the animals playing in primates too, of how the the highest the highest i think monkey the the dominant monkey cannot be a tyrant, but is' most of the time this kind of benevolent ruler but at the same at the same time, I think it's useful for you to connect the the pragmatical value of these moral moral concepts, but at the same time, I feel like somehow if you make the, the moral rules such as do not lie into saying, into this kind of sorry, Siri just sorry, Siri just popped up. <laughs> 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 if, you, if, you, if you take these moral laws and then you just somehow let's say you explain uh, do not lie let's say my sister asks me, why should he not lie? Instead of so me telling her that because lying is bad or lying is evil, I say to her, because, lying, because not lying brings you the most utility. I think the second way of explaining somehow degrades, degrades this kind of moral law into a utilitarian principle. And, and in some sense makes it, I, won't, I, won't, I wouldn't say weaker, but makes it, 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 makes it, it demoralizes it. Mm-hmm. I
0: completely agree sense. with that yeah and I think it ties back to ultimately the what do you call it the the is art kind of question it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. the moment you reach science the moment you reach like trying to use it for practicality the only thing you have to ask is well why is that the rule and and ultimately you seem to have to undeniably end up in a very idealistic route you have some serious idealistic underpinnings where you really can base all your other ideas off of. And it's that kind of that idealistic underpinnings, which are very important. And now something I was thinking about Christ as well, like what is the role of Christ? And, and of course he is the Christ, he's a Messiah, but also it's Christ is the ideal. He's, he's meant to be the archetype of the ideal. And because I think that the ideal is something, and I was thinking about it in, uh, in, in my relationships with some people in my life, it's like, there is an ideal, but it seems to be the very nature of the ideal by definition, that you are meant to be separate from the ideal. You're not meant you're meant to work towards the ideal, that's for yeah. sure. But at the same time, there's there's this sense of fear to be with the ideal. And because on one hand, you might be afraid, especially if this is a person, that you'll be afraid that if you joined with the ideal, you would ruin the ideal because you know that you're imperfect. That's one yeah. thing. And I think another fear at the same time is also the idea that. If you reach the ideal you're not you're afraid that the ideal would not exactly be what you expected the ideal to be if you got know what i mean especially yeah. for imperfect ideals
1: yeah i i definitely agree with your two points but i actually want to add a third point to it it's somehow that not you're afraid to be earth ideal not only because you're, you're afraid that you uh you somehow taint the ideal and 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 somehow the ideal may may not match up to how you do but the ideal always judges you and this is similar to, to what you talk about about afraiding that you're not good enough for the ideal but the ideal sort of always stares at you and and it it shines and somehow illuminates your deficiencies and it's like uh, because I play the piano right and there's sometimes where maybe there's some master classes where you can go to this this very famous pianist and and ask for advice and for them to coach you. But I, I, I've always been too afraid to go go to any of these these classes because, because I'm afraid, afraid to be judged by by, by the master master pianist uh, regarding my piano skills. Because you see, it's it's very comforting for me to play piano in front of people who's not very good at piano. Because somehow, like <laughs> no matter what, <laughs> like even even. Yeah, no matter what, what I, how I play, like, they'll, they'll think it's pretty good. But No wonder you when, play the uh, piano in front of me so much. <laughs> 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 no, 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 because like, I, can, I can just play, play really fast things. And then, and then somehow I, I know that it's deficient, the piece. But people who's not very great at piano can't really hear it. And I think it's the same thing for cello. It's like, I mean, when you're listening to your own piece, and, and when you're, let's say, uh, I think an example would be if when I'm trying to trying to upload a piano video onto YouTube, compared to when I'm just ordinarily practicing. When I'm just ordinarily practicing, I, I feel like I'm playing pretty well. But then when I when I want to play a piece and upload it onto YouTube, I would I would play like ten times and not get a single recording that satisfies me. Because it is it is in that way that you're sort of measuring yourself to to the ideal, to your potential, to what you can really be.
0: I have to admit that that's perhaps a, a great prompt for me to apologise to all the viewers for why I have not actually pr- uh, released a video of me playing a song uh, once <laughs> upon a time in the West, i have been promising you guys to play. It's because I, 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 I've tried to record it. I, I have to admit, I was... On, honest to god i was really trying really hard to record it but none of them sounded as good as it was when i was practicing it exactly like what warren said and and that's why i haven't uploaded it so it's got nothing to do with me not wanting to make a video for you guys it's just because i genuinely just couldn't record one which is good enough but but i want to also build on that in the sense that i think the ideal the idea of the ideal judging you is something very interesting because it, it goes to the Nietzschean idea of guilt and not sin right like To Nietzsche, guilt is—it's exactly what, like what you say. It judges you. It—it ties you down. It—it makes you turn to some other obligation. You have to strive. You have to always keep on going towards another goal. And and sometimes it's very easy to feel that you're imperfective and you're not good enough, and that you have to that nothing you do would be good enough. And that's one of the problems. And that's one of the idea of the Nietzschean idea of self desecration with guilt. But then at the same time, you could turn to the flip side of and say, well. What actually happens if we get rid of the concept of sin, get rid of the concept of guilt, is the is the freedom of man or the complete freedom of man the a good enough justification to get rid of guilt? Because I sometimes like to think that guilt is a concept which is so important yeah. that that it's absolutely impossible for us to physically get rid of without destroying our own mental edifice, yeah. if you got what I mean.
1: Yeah, I think related to this, I've been reading about uh, Hadar on conscience. The word conscience is actually, originally, is the same word as consciousness. And consciousness, if you, if you take out its roots, sorry, Siri came out again. <laughs> if you take out the roots of consciousness, it is just talking with yourself. And somehow your conscience is this voice inside yourself that you that that tells you to do something. That, that tells you what, what to do and what not to do. And Arne's, uh, I guess, Arne's uh, discussion on conscience would be that conscience is this thing where, because, it's, because we're somehow we're always not not always, but we're sometimes at least when we're thinking, when we're conscious of ourselves, a, cre- a two-in-one creature. So we have we have ourselves, and also when we're thinking, we talk with another part of ourselves, and. The conscience is this kind of faculty that that tells us that we wouldn't want to live we wouldn't want to live with let's say a murderer or a thief. And and that's that's the part about why why we shouldn't do bad because or why we shouldn't do evil. Because whenever we do evil and more more so when we're not punished for it, we're sort of we're constantly dwelling with, with a thief, with a murderer, with a liar, with a liar, and it's it's just not a good place to be, and it stops us from thinking. I completely agree
0: with that, and I think that, yeah, I think it's something that is very difficult—the idea of conscience, and and perhaps it's also about knowing ourselves. It's that, and it turns to, a, I think, a fundamentally Christian idea in the sense that we are all we all have a knowledge of good and evil in our hearts, regardless of whether we like it or not. It's the it's the idea that, or at least unless you're a psychopath, I mean, most people, if you kill someone, you know that's wrong. It's about that you're knowing your own flaws, which makes you understand and appreciate that you have to know the ideal. And it's that idea of conscience, which I think is very important. And And in another sense, I think this ties into hatred, which, which would later turn into the slave morality is the idea that what you hate about others is often what you see in yourself, if you got what I mean. And and for the longest time, I, I really hated society because of certain, a few different aspects. And, and I really hated it, and I didn't know and understand why I hated it, because normally I'm, I'm quite an emotionally neutral guy, if, if you know. But, I mean, perhaps Warren knows seen me most of my emotions <laughs> before. I mean, <laughs> I think the only time I've cried in the last, like, two or three years was right next to Warren. But, I mean... <laughs> Well, I mean, I have to say that I'm normally quite yeah. an emotionally neutral guy. I don't feel too much emotions. But, but there was some strange reason what, for why I hated society so much or at least disliked in this to, a significant, to the same degree as I do right now. And, mm-hmm. and I think I realized that one of perhaps the reasons of that disagreement or a reason of that kind of hate perhaps is perhaps because I saw some part of the aspect in myself and that's why I really disliked. It's about the... It's about that idea that you aren't good enough but and you could do better. You expect you have a standard for yourself that you're just not reaching. And that's something that I perhaps see in society and I see in myself. And that's one of the reasons perhaps why I
1: feel that. And that's something I think we should keep in mind, if you got what I mean. And and also my, my dad always talks tells this to me. It's like when we when we make fun of other people, like we make fun of each other a lot inside the family, and especially my mom. And, and uh, when we make fun of her, it, it, there's this strange phenomenon where if if what we say is what, what she's actually deficient in, then she will get very angry. But when when we say say something, we, we criticize or we just make fun of her for something that she knows that she's not actually that bad at, then she doesn't she, she doesn't get mad and she's, she she's quite nice about it. Sorry, Siri pops out again. <laughs> yeah. and, I, think yeah. I think I think related to hatred too there's also there's also envy which is which is quite similar and i think envy coming to hatred would be hatred would be what you see in yourself and envy would be what you see in other people that you know you shouldn't have but you shouldn't develop i know but you you have not developed yourself yet
0: yeah. I think envy just is just. Scat-
1: I'll just turn off Siri whilst you
0: talk. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe we've actually said something about Siri which was true, and now she's very annoyed. But I think that perhaps, <laughs> uh, I think perhaps, yeah, envy is something which is which is very quickly tied into resen- uh, resentment and and in the idea that what we want, we look for in other people is that I think we are all fundamentally very egotistical people, and I know there's that Chinese proverb, runjut it's like the idea that everyone's good at birth and i know warren knows uh um, mandarin more than Cantonese, so probably he there might have been a link i, I, I gap know there. what you said i know but what you yeah, said. it's it's the idea that they're like in the chinese tradition it's a lot of the idea that man was born good but went bad whereas in the west it's more of man was born bad and went good and and i and i fundamentally like to think that man was born bad and couldn't have the potential to good because i think the first one might is perhaps a too naive view of reality and perhaps the reason for that is because and perhaps one of the reasons for envy and i don't think envy is completely bad because envy tells us what we need to improve in in a lot of situations not all the time but at least in a lot of situations for example you might be envious of someone who's richer than you i'm not saying that money is everything but seeing someone richer than you you want to work towards that it gives you a goal as long as you use that emotion correctly and and that's the unfortunate thing, and that's what leads to the state morality, is when people see that envy, see that resentment, and take it in the wrong way, instead of trying to improve yourself, you then make it a problem of the person opposite you, if you get what I mean. And I think that's perhaps where Nietzsche comes on the state morality, and and that's something that I've been thinking about recently.
1: So, so are, are you, I guess you're kind of distinguishing between two different kinds of envy. <laughs> There's a kind of envy that's tilt towards resentment which mm-hmm. is the kind of envy where you try you you aim to destroy your ideal so so you're not judged at all but 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 that kind of envy is is really destructive and if if i'm not wrong i think that's prob- probably why dante put the envious person down in the very very depths of hell and there's also another kind of envy where it's sort of you you realize you become conscious that you're about the person and then you after you becoming conscious of that person, you turn this envy into something not necessarily you use this envy to diagnose something about yourself and try to improve yourself and match up to the persons person so you don't feel envious. And, and yeah. I <laughs> think envy envy is a very very annoying emotion or yes a, a very aggravating one because it's i i still feel envy for some people i think it's like when when i see some people like, like they they've graduated uni at like 18 years old or like uh, like this uh, this math this math prodigy who who managed to i think who who managed to to get like uh the imo gold medal when when he's like 16 or 15 and then i i do feel envious and I think I, I feel envious first because I'm not as good as them. And I feel like and, and then they're, they're sort of, I'm sort of being judged when I see what, what, what potential hum, human beings have. And at the same time, it's the kind of emotion that even if you're very introspective and you realize that you're envious, it, it, still, it still bites you. You know, it, it still hurts. Definitely, yeah. And uh, I, I think it's like the idea of
0: emotion, the dual-sided nature of emotion. It's like, well, sometimes the emotion is good and sometimes the emotion is bad. It's like how you soon realize that most of your weaknesses are actually or can be twisted into strengths, if you got what I mean. Like a very uh, arrogant person's arrogance can be easily twisted to confidence and might save him a very big deal, perhaps. I was quite an arrogant person in the past, but but now I have twisted that into confidence. But now that I'm saying that, I've changed my weaknesses into stress. I now sound quite like an arrogant person myself. So I mean, I think I found myself in a bit of a Russell's paradox or something like. That. <laughs> by, by, by saying that you're not arrogant, you become arrogant, and I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, <laughs> this is also related to what I to what I've been reading. Uh, reading today on Aaron, <laughs> she talks about. I think there's there's this quote from the Bible where like when you do good, you cannot let the right hand know the left hand. Did you know mm-hmm. that quote? Yeah. So so doing doing the person who does good cannot let other people know that he's doing good, or else the the nature of the, the motive of you of you doing good has changed, and and what you do is not good anymore. So the and. And somehow, when you're doing good, you cannot even let yourself know that you're doing good. Or else, else the motive has changed and you're not being good anymore. So the, the person who's doing good is the most lonely person in this sense because his goodness cannot... He cannot even let himself uh, know that he's doing good. And if if it's not for, I guess, God witnessing the goodness that one's doing, then, then this kind of goodness would would be complete complete isolation yeah
0: yeah i I definitely think i agree with that and i think that sometimes and i think that's why man needs an ideal so much even though the ideal is so destructive at the same time or can be so destructive it's it's like you need the ideal because because even though you're not doing good for yourself or not to let yourself know you're doing that good to reach out towards ideal and at least in that sense, there is some sense of goal. There is that Christ that you're you're moving towards because without that hope, without that goal, then that that reasoning to do good without having an exterior motive to it, it becomes way more difficult without that yeah. without that goal. And that's what something I was thinking about. It's like the myth of Sisyphus. And perhaps, I mean, whenever I say that, it goes directly to Camus, but perhaps in the more traditional sense or the analogical sense, it's like, well, man without God, what I like to see is like Sisyphus, it goes around and around and around. You, Man creates his own ideas, creates his own values, and hence is just caught in this trap of thinking he's not good enough, but by creating his, his own values, he becomes good enough, but then he dislikes the values that he's created and he gets caught in a trap. But what Christ does, perhaps, and what the ideal does, is making that cyclical nature of life a uh, Uh, kind of a linear one it's the sense of man now has something to move towards and he's no longer moving in a cycle but upwards towards a certain ideal which which i think is perhaps one of the only escapes or one of the only solutions to the problem that
1: that we're faced with in a lot of situations if you got what i mean yeah there's actually a lot of interesting points there i think the first 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 thing i have to pick out is i've I've been thinking about this idea of how you're supposed to strive towards the ideal and what i'm i think related to the goodness paradox and also similar to the goodness paradox there's also what i've discovered called the paradox of love in the sense that if when you love you cannot you cannot know that you're loving or and you cannot even try to love because once you try to love or once you know that you're loving you cannot be you cannot be loving anymore so well, that's perhaps that
0: why you all failed at relationships, mate. <laughs> 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 okay. okay. No, no,
1: I, 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 I took this from David Foster Wallace. Yeah. But, but, but I do fail at relationships too, <laughs> undeniably. <laughs> Maybe because I, I mean, I've been thinking too much about, about these kind of things, and I'm yeah. actually not loving. But actually, just thinking about whether I am loving or whether I am not loving, whether my love is authentic or inauthentic, and and getting bogged down into these kind of stuff. But but, anyways, so in in so related to these two paradoxes, I feel like the way that you should strive towards ideal is somehow like somehow embodying the ideal and making the ideal yours instead of actually I guess explicating and actually stating out the ideal in the sense that I. And and that relates to our previous discussion about literature, in the sense that it is it is literature that really touches us. And and instead of uh, the kind of syllogistic arguments that one makes, perhaps in in some kind some form of philosophy, uh, in analytic philosophy, uh, there's there's in stories a a miraculous power of letting us. Of, an, of welcoming the ideal to embody us. If, if just to relate to our idea of the thoughts coming to us, not us going to the thoughts. And also the, the Sisyphus one is very interesting too. I've been working on another idea that somehow Sisyphus is, is still blessed in that he's he still has the power to push, or he still has the motivation to push the rock up, up, up the hill. And the worst thing is... The worst thing that can happen to oneself is not suffering or, or pain, but a kind of complete indifference towards the world of not feeling anything. But I'm I'm am still thinking about whether this whether pain, pain and suffering is worse than not feeling at all, or is it the other way around that constant pain is is, is worse than not not feeling. Because I think I've, I've talked to you about this before. Uh, I, I actually feel like hell is better than death sometimes uh, because in hell, you're still living. And, and, and although you're suffering, you're still living. Whereas in death in the kind of atheistic death, there's, it's just complete nothingness. You, you don't feel anything. And I'm just wondering what you think about it. But I, I, I feel like I may be a bit naive here because I haven't actually experienced real suffering. For example, I, recently I, I've started running long distance, and I think I, I may have, I, I may want to alter my my view a bit after the suffering from each from each running session. <laughs> well, I think I first should. Com-
0: I think I could first comment on your point about love, and then we can talk a bit about love and death, yeah. suffering and death. Again, I think I completely agree with that. I think love, at, as its first principle, as being love first, has to be irrational. And how do we know that, I think, is because if you look at the story of Christ, God's love is very irrational. I mean, if anything in the entire Bible is just seen as the height of irrationality, it would be the idea of God coming to die for us on the cross. Like, why on earth, at least in human terms, would the perfect being want to die for sinful beings? Like, if you could think about human suffering, that's bad. But imagine a perfect being having to suffer the same as a human. It's like a king having to starve himself on purpose for someone who hates him. Like that is at its ultimate core, I think is the nature of love. It's, it's an irrational feeling, which you have very little control over. And the more you think about it, the more you lose it. And and that's why love has to be lived and not thought too much about, I think. And and that's why the love for your neighbor is so difficult or because because we're too often, we're thinking too much, we're adding too much implications about it. Like why why is it so difficult to hate the person who you hates or to love the person who hates you? It's because you're thinking about the fact that they might backstab you. But if, you, if you're if mm-hmm. accepting it first as the starting point, if you're st- accepting love as your as your starting point to all your worldview, then then it goes the opposite way. It's no it's no longer rational, it's based off an irrational basis, not in the irrational basis in the sense of it, of it being negative, but in the sense of it being just acceptance, if you got what I mean.
1: I think that's mm-hmm. the nature of love. Mm-hmm. So love is almost this kind of miraculous faculty mm-hmm. in the sense that it, it does not follow reason but transcends it in some sense and is able to able to I guess transcend the boundaries of reason and and and, and make life I guess sparkle. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I, I definitely think so, yeah. I think love is is that it's the emotion which makes you feel that you, that there's so much more to life than the physical world. I mean, like I have to admit myself, like in my past, like I had a relationship before with like someone, and and <laughs> and, and I have to admit that the, the that like I I would not have appreciated life as much without that and and that's why i'm eternally grateful for it and i'm not gonna and i now i know i'm saying it like i'll never have a relationship again in the future but no but it's like <laughs> and i actually jinx myself too early because who knows what's gonna happen but i mean i have to say that it's that idea of love it's it's like it makes you understand that you there's so much more to the universe than physicality and and reason because think about what I've perhaps gone through that relationship. Like it's like, well, why, why did I even bother staying in it? Or, or perhaps if I stepped into the, well, the shoes of my ex, like it was like, why the hell would I stay with it? And it's like there's a rational aspect to it, and yeah. and it helps you understand that love cannot be rational, and but not in a bad way, but in a good way. And it's the idea that there is something which goes beyond the physical world that we experience. It's it's the idea of brotherhood. It's the idea of acceptance. Yeah. And forgiveness, which is so beautiful It's kind of how Mushkin, I think And it explains how Mushkin, even though Rogozin kills Nastasia and almost kills him Still kind of forgives him And loves him till the very end And when he falls into insanity Mm -hmm. He embraces Rogozin on the floor It's like, well, why would you do that? It's because love goes beyond that And there's something transcendent in life Which is born within our hearts And perhaps that's why the Chinese said that Yan Zichou is It's like People start off good because I do think that there is good in people's hearts, it's just we have to look towards finding it. If you got what I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, I, and I would say that you're real right. Somehow we have irrational desires, and our, our life cannot be completely rational, or a completely rational life is a life that's somehow not worth living. It, if, if you live your life without any pact, w- without committing. I guess any faults or any acts of passion, like Dostoevsky in the casino, then, then you're somehow starving yourself of a part of life, even though that part may be may be perilous at, at the time, uh, f- from the view of the present. Somehow, it is these these acts that transgress reason that that has to be appreciated in in life that makes makes that makes life transcending. I've been using transcend- transcendence yes. a lot. Too. <laughs> perhaps
0: it's like the same of my use of the word profound, which I seem to say in every sentence, but but I, I do I do completely agree with you. It's like, you have to have that suffering, that bitterness, and that ties on to your point about suffering and death. It's that you need to have that suffering, you need to have that pain in order to appreciate the beauty of it. And, and perhaps it's like Stavrokin in Demons, it's like He's suffering with nihilism, you have Stavrohin and uh, Stepanovich, right? you have you have the one who fulfills his nihilism, or or actually not his nihilism, but his depravity with killing other people, and then you have Stavrohin who just tries to fill that gap in his heart by just doing anything. He sleeps with people, he does all that things to try to fill that gap in, and it's completely irrational, but in the same way it seems to be that he's trying to fill that gap in his soul which cannot be filled by reason. He's the most reasonable person in the book, perhaps. He, there is a massive gap there, which has to be filled with, with, uh, with, with something else. And I had a dream recently about it as well. Like someone asked me out, and and I wrote it in my diary. But I don't even I, but I, <laughs> and and then I and I said yes, you know, but not because mm-hmm. necessarily I wanted a relationship per se. And that was the weirdest thing. And I was thinking about it afterwards. I was writing in my diary, and I was like, well, why would why would that happen? And I think it's because. Humans need to go beyond the ideal. We live in the ideal so long. We have to go beyond it, and that's perhaps what the dream was trying to tell me. It's like the messy side of humanity is is scary. It, it cannot be controlled. You don't have complete control over it. You cannot calculate it. But it's that lack of control, lack of calculation that that is the paradox, I think, of human existence. We want that as much as we want the ideal, and it's about balancing it, which I think is the first principle of humanity and. And that's why
1: we know that nihilism is such a big threat, in my opinion. if You got what I mean? Yeah, and and I think you're right. And it's the kind of leap of faith that you have to take <laughs> to 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 go out into the world without knowing what it consists, or or to commit yourself to to something without knowing whether you will succeed, but but still doing so wholeheartedly. And I think this this relates to I think I. I this 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 wonderful kafka story I, I just can't resist telling you about it i think it somehow relates to this it's it's about this person who just i think it's it's two people who just searches frantic, frantically in the room and then <laughs> frantically in the room and then like searches for the door to go into to go into another room or it's kind of—I guess it's a metaphor for salvation or some way out, right? And they're, they're searching for the door, and and they search, search, and search for—I think hours on end, days. And at the end, they they find the door, and then they realize they, they push the door, right? And the door, the door is the way out, not the way in. They've been in the room all along. So it it's in this in this kind of constant struggle, constant struggle for meaning for. Constant struggle to make sense of the world—that sense actually lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely agree with
0: that. It's the idea of yeah, it's it's kind of like heaven and hell is within you. Like the choice, the mind in itself can make it heaven, can make a hell out of heaven and a heaven out of hell. I mean, whenever I try to say that quote, I always turn back to the Zarathustra <laughs> contra the ocean. Much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, quick reminder for you: I might be publishing that soon, but. <laughs> But I mean, like from a, I, I think that is so true. It's like, and that's the beauty of free will, at least in the Christian sense. It's like God has given us a choice of whether to go to heaven or hell. And a lot of people like to say, like, that's not our choice. Or you sometimes, it's like, why didn't God give us more evidence? And I think, well, yeah, maybe more evidence will be have been fine. But it does. it's like the lack of evidence has never stopped people from coming to God, if you get what I mean. And I'm not saying there isn't any evidence, but I mean, you don't need a, demonstrative empirical evidence of God existing I mean there's like how many billion theists in the world right now it's it's astronomical and it's the idea that well we have the choice and well what exactly do we choose and 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 I guess it's the idea that and you say hell is perhaps better than death it's like and and I would agree with that because like after all why should we be afraid of death if, if God doesn't exist if you got what I mean it's it's the idea of and it's something that I I don't know, it's like it's it's very easy to say that let's not be afraid of death, and in especially in an atheistic mm-hmm. sense, right? God doesn't exist, then what is death, it's absolutely nothing. But at the same time, it's that it is absolutely nothing, those few words which is so frightening to you, if you got what I mean. It's that yeah, it's the idea that the fact that it is absolutely nothing scares you, not in a philosophical sense, but just because the idea of man losing his meaning and man losing his values and his intrinsic thoughts and experience, like you say, is—it's
1: just a very frightening thought. If you get what I mean. Yeah, and I, I've been recently writing this fiction piece for for a competition, and in it, there's this—I used death as this metaphor for complete indifference. Like that, you know, there's there's sometimes when 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 you become sort of in, in the depths of despair, you become it's it, it, it's almost like you do not want to do anything. There's no there's no heaven or hell. There's no there's no ideal to try for or nothing to fail. It's it's this kind of complete indifference in life where it, it's very hard for words to describe. It's it's sort of like when when you've, you you become so 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 guilty or filled with so much remorse, so much so, so much kind of energy that at, at, suddenly you, you cross this kind of threshold and then on the other side, it is just nothing. You, you stay there and, and, and you almost don't feel, and, at, and when, when you come out of, out of that sort of feeling and then you look back at it, it's, it's, it's the scariest thing of all just not feeling anything because my in in the fiction piece my my argument is sort of not, not necessarily argument but I said something like in hell at least there's a heaven that you can look at or a heaven that you can you can think about even though you will never you'll never be able to be there but in complete indifference heaven and hell disappear
0: I, yeah I yeah I definitely think so and and perhaps that just leads you to a question of whether or whether it's just better to just accept heaven before that, and and perhaps that goes to Pascal's wager. Though I don't necessarily think you should, you should enter that relationship with God, because of because of wanting to go to heaven. Because I don't think that's why you should believe in God, and you and I would rather have someone just choose to go to hell, or go to hell, but rather than choose to go to heaven, just to choose to go to heaven. If you got what I mean, it's that relationship with God, which is the most important thing, and and perhaps that death, which you're talking about, and that fear is. Is our shared fear of nihilism, which I think is uh, mm-hmm. ultimately, in my opinion, the, the biggest challenge of, of my life or of, of modern society. And, and that's why I was writing in my aphorisms the other day. It was, man is on the verge of nihilism. That is the starting point of all humanities. That was
1: my aphorism <laughs> oh, yeah. that I wrote the other day. <laughs> I, 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 my, my, my aphorism, my favorite one, is something like, uh, we, we nevertheless try to sleep in a world that is not, not made for it. <laughs> yes. it's, it's like there was this. Uh, I was I was just lying on my bed and I just couldn't sleep because I was. I think I was reading too much Kafka, and then and then I, these thoughts just just kept on came, coming up to, to me like these aphorisms. And then every time I, an aphorism comes over, I like frantically reaches out to my phone to record it. And after I record it, I, I cannot sleep anymore. And I was I, so much- I want to talk about. Yeah, I also want to talk about your 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 thoughts about how whether because you you talked about how it, it's easy for us to say that to to say that we should not fear death, and but but in reality it's very difficult to implement or or very difficult to to really accept. What yeah? What what do you think? Do 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 you fear death or are, are you afraid or do you think you yeah. I have to admit that
0: and it goes against what I've just said but I do think that I don't fear death too much perhaps and it depends on how you die as well right it's like mm-hmm. because recently I was it's also in my dreams as well I die a lot in my dreams for some reason most of those deaths are for sacrifices it's like I'm either sacrificing my life for a person or ideal or, or some time that I'm sacrificing my, my life and, and it's one of those things which I think it's it ties back to Christianity it's like Paul says something to live as Christ and to die is gain. And what I think he means by that is that death for Christians is a way to salvation It is, it is the ending of your journey in life. And it's kind of like, it's like the end of a journey and you know that you've reached a certain destination. And, and I don't fear death in the sense that I'm, because I'm afraid of the opposite. And what I'm afraid of is perhaps it's because living out the ideal of Christ is difficult in my life. I don't think it's diff- too difficult that I would, I would rather ditch the ideal and and ditch Christ, because I do think that Christ, in some sense, like sin, the falling short of the ideal has a burden, but the burden of not having the ideal is even more significant than, than failing the ideal every day, if you get what I mean. And perhaps, and perhaps death is perhaps the idea like, if you can't live by the ideal in a perfect way, at least perhaps the easiest way of it is to die by your ideals. And that's what I was thinking as well. It's like I was dreaming, I was thinking about the sacrifices in the dreams, and I'm like, well, if that happened to you in real life, what would I be most afraid of? Would it be the decision of sacrifice? I don't think it would be. I think what I'm afraid of most is, is the idea that that opportunity would arise and I'll be too afraid to go through with it, just as I failed to live up to the ideals before as well, if you got what I mean. And in that sense, I kind of embraced that and, perhaps not the most enlightening thought yeah. to think of but i think that is a solution to the fear of death in some
1: sense it's almost like if 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 you if the situation comes and you you don't you, you don't sacrifice yourself then you i think related to what we said before you can't you can't live with yourself and then that's that's even somehow more suffer, more more sufferable than 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 dying and, and I think there's, there's also a very interesting psychological thing because in my dream, instead of me dying, I keep on having other people dying, and, like, and I have other people dying, and then I wake up crying that they, they have died. Like I remember, I think just last week I dreamt of Heidegger visiting China, and then Heidegger visiting China, and I served as this kind of translator, right? And then and then this a this this doesn't correspond to historical fact, but in my dream, Heidegger had like this this late stage skin cancer and then, and then uh, I was taking heidegger I was taking heidegger around uh around China, and at the end we went into like this ho- hotel and there were like two other women like middle aged like uh, kind women, and then we were just chatting. And then I and I just I just looked at Heidegger with a kind of waning and then not having a lot of life and then still 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 remaining serene in front of death uh, this, despite, despite his his condition and I and I and I just started crying and came out of the dream and some of my other dreams are similar to that like some, someone is dying someone I love is dying instead sort of I've I've never found I don't think I've ever I've ever had a dream of myself dying. Maybe there's some there's some significant psychological psychological truth there, maybe, or psychological difference. I definitely think that's the case, perhaps, and and you know it's it's something
0: that's I think it's like a thing you have to find out for yourself. But mm-hmm. I definitely think that the idea of someone else dying is perhaps uh, this idea, perhaps of the a representation of the world around you falling apart in some sense. If you got what I mean, and the idea that. Yeah. That you're the the people that not in perhaps in my sense it's the idea that I'm I'm trying to work towards an idea which I'm failing. And perhaps in your sense it's the idea that you're you also are working around to an ideal you're failing. But instead of perhaps it's like what I was saying, like that that's the one. It's like you're climbing up the mountain and perhaps I'm trying to climb up it. But instead of and the other one is that the mountain stays the same, but everything else is crumbling down. And perhaps that might be yeah, something yeah. to think about if you got what I mean. And and perhaps that goes to our perhaps might be our last topic that we want to discuss is just our views on Christianity and our, or just our interactions with it because also my views on Christianity have changed mm-hmm. a lot and I know that your views on Christianity have changed a lot as well and we could perhaps discuss our different problems of Christianity and kind of discuss that a bit as well here if you got what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, should I start? Sure, uh, I'll yeah. start then. Uh, I think I I first when when I was in like year seven or year eight, like very young, right? And then, I, because because our school has PRS, philosophy and religious studies. And I, I, I remember very clearly, once I was, I was sort of walking back home and then people were asking each other what subjects they're choosing for year nine, uh, for people who don't know, for the British system, in, in year nine, we have to choose our GCSEs, which is kind of this, uh, this first exam that we have to take before the A level, which is the AP uh, in, in, a, in American system. And choosing for GCSEs, I could have chosen religious studies, and people were discussing what GCSEs they wanted to choose. And then I was like, I was like, ah, uh, why, why I I I wouldn't want to choose choose uh, PRS, philosophy and religious studies, because so much of it is Christianity, and I don't believe in Christianity, etc. And etc. etc. But my views have actually changed changed a lot, and it's and it's part of. Part of being being friends with Josh, and also another part is is listening to Jordan Peterson's lecture. Although I, I don't completely agree with anything, like most a lot of things that he says, but but he explains the Bible in such a way that to, and he makes a very compelling case that the, the, there's some deep and profound truth in the Bible. Although I I would say that when when he links the Bible to utility he's there's a kind of a leveling down of the bible with with the utility and losing of this, this this divine significance but nevertheless uh what when jordan peterson explained the bible in a kind of scientific rationalist way that i was accustomed to before like when, when i just started reading philosophy it changed a lot of my views on Christianity. And also just seeing how, uh, interacting with you, seeing Jordan Peterson, just seeing how people can, and also I'm also reading people like Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, see how how this this kind of belief system, this sort of leap of faith beyond the scientific, beyond what we certainly know, is is something that, although I myself may not be able to do, is at least something that is very commendable. And relating to perhaps my myself not being able to accept Christianity or as completely believing in it, uh, in the sense that I've been thinking about the writers that I, uh, the re, yeah the writers that, that I've read, and I've I've read a lot of Dostoevsky. Partly because of Josh's recommendation, and also I chose it for a school project. Where I had to write a, a really long article on Dostoevsky, so I read I read most of his major works, including this this uh, I think it's a thousand page biography on him. But didn't I feel like somehow I I didn't manage to retain a lot from Dostoevsky, even though I I managed to appreciate him, but I I, I somehow didn't manage to to take as much from him him as i've i've liked uh, to, to take from him and this is i think it's related to a kind of cultural cultural background and my upbringing heidegger had this idea which which is that we we ourselves he called us Dasein, but that's not related <laughs> to the entire topic heidegger has too much jargon but anyway so he he, he said that we we always have an understanding of being, an understanding of ourselves, and this understanding of being manifests itself in our cultural practices, in our social interactions. For example, in how how far away we stand stand with each other when we're talking to each other, or uh, what kind of gestures we make. Do we nod when other people's talking to to, to sig- signify that we're listening? How how in the left do we? Do we look at each other in the lift, or do we sort of uh, move our eyes aside to to avoid eye contact frantically uh, when we're be, when we're with someone who we don't know in the lift? And all these things form our own understanding of ourselves, and none of these are conscious. and And his idea is that somehow we cannot, we cannot, we don't have a complete freedom of choosing our identity and choosing who we be because a lot of it is. Given to us, he says, we're thrown into the world. We don't choose to be to the world. We're just thrown into whatever. And, and his idea of the world isn't necessarily uh, the the universe, as in all the all the atoms uh, and, and molecules that moves around, but the human world, the world of cultural practices, and it is it is from our cultural practices, and, and th- that that we can take out what identity we we wish to assume. Even though we're not completely, uh, completely defined by one, one identity from birth, we can we can only choose to to, to assume one that is presented to us that we're thrown in, to, to the world that we're thrown into. Anyway, this is a very long-winded way to say that culture has a big effect on your belief. <laughs> um, I I'll, I'll agree with
0: that. I will agree with you in that, and and perhaps about, a bit about my faith is that, and I don't think mine's is perhaps this, interesting as your one is i mean i when i was growing up i always grew up in a christian family but i don't think i personally really wanted to be a christian right i don't think i've lived up a good christian life until perhaps after a significant change of events and that's perhaps even even after i got baptized i didn't become a really good christian after that It was after some more self-reflection i wouldn't consider myself a good christian now because because i do agree with nietzsche that there was only one christian and i mean, I mean you could could switch to a bit, and I think more precisely, say there was only one good Christian. And he died on the cross. I think that's true in the sense that, like, no one else can become Christ.
1: It's like no one's a good Christian, but we're yeah. all just. And, and didn't even that. I, th- I think didn't even Christ say something like, uh, "Even he himself is not good, and the person who's who's absolutely good is is God, who's in heaven." Yeah, I
0: think yeah, that's and, cool.
1: yeah, that's that's true, and and
0: it's the idea that. I think in my faith, it was really like a change in my life which really helped me I, Helped me really turn towards more philosophy and stuff like that. And I know I, when I started this channel, I was always focused on the existence of God, like apologetics and stuff. But but now I think my channel has gone to something which has, is like less so focused on apologetics. Like, and to be honest, I, to, to a certain degree, I, I'm less worried about whether God exists, more worried about whether we need God in our lives. And I think that the need for uh, Christianity is just so so evident and so strong that that like even if God exists I I'll find myself doesn't exist I mean I will find myself with difficulty separating myself from that structure and uh, perhaps responding to your point is about what you call it about um, about the about the cultural representing your beliefs and I do think there's a significant cultural implications on what you believe in but at the same time I'll, I'll, I'll like to think that we we have a choice to go beyond our culture, if you get what I mean. We can't let our culture define us. I mean, the culture has built up on our past, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that's perhaps a sufficient reason to not believe, if you get what I mean, in the sense that saying your culture um, determines you, I think, might might just be akin to saying that how science determines morality or you get morality from science. I think there's a similar gap there between the culture influencing our choices and... And our more our responsibility for our choices. If you
1: got, I mean, I think there's a gap there and, as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's two points to talk about here. The first point is that he, Heidegger, when he talks about culture conditioning our choices, he's he's somehow saying that the culture presents us with all the possibilities, and we can choose amongst those possibilities. But also, I I, also, I myself also had doubt about his this his I guess representation of culture as a thing that we can never get out of he says we can never get get behind our thrownness or get behind our culture behind our world and because i was thinking how the first just related to you how the first chinese ever became christian you see because because it, it's definitely i think somehow you can you can adopt or, or you can immerse yourself inside another culture in some sense and and you immerse, immerse yourself in, in such a degree, maybe by reading literature, maybe by interacting with other people, or maybe even after those, having some, having some significant event inside your life, and then, and then somehow being integrated into that culture, or having a, a kind of understanding of yourself that, that incorporates another culture other than your own. And, and maybe that's possible, and and also also the, the third point this is related to heidegger he has this idea of a reciprocal rejoinder this reciprocal rejoinder is even though he, he doesn't want to put any moral value on any of his any of his ideas but but reciprocal rejoinder is probably the closest he gets from putting a moral value on things and he he thinks I, I would say that he thinks it's good but so he says even though we're thrown into the world and then we have this culture around us, we can, we can somehow get into our culture and this is, this is our way of living most authentically would be not to, to really immerse ourselves in our culture and to discover its possibilities and somehow from those possibilities and, and, and come back and give back something to the culture. And this is his account of how, how to change how cultural change comes about. The example would be some, someone like Martin Luther King, who takes the Christian precepts, the, the Christian idea from American culture, and then and then changes the culture, and finds this kind of contradiction in the culture, and then changes to the culture in such a way that what is against the Christian idea of equality before God is is, is at the end rectified. And I will think that perhaps, and as just a
0: brief response to that, is that I, I, I do agree with you that most of our choices would be given by our culture, or our upbringings, right? But, but at the same time, I'll, perhaps in, in a sense of a Nietzschean way, in, I, in the same way that Nietzsche tells us to go beyond good and evil, I'll perhaps that we should go beyond the culture. Because, I mean, I, I don't think that we should see culture as a significant limiting factor to our beliefs, and I'll just like to perhaps invite you to perhaps go beyond beyond the culture in, in a sense that it's like well not only are we talking about this fundamental nature which is yes it's definitely like I have I have great Chinese influence on my life and you perhaps have more Chinese influence on your life being closer to the Chinese tradition than I do but but at the same time I, I do think that it, it, it is difficult to go beyond our culture but at the same time I think it's definitely possible and and maybe it's not out of a rational way, perhaps, in some sense, it, like love in the same way that you overcome the, the restrictions of your culture. I mean, yes, there might be a rational way out of it, but but I think there's also a spiritual and a psychological element or, a, a, well, I don't want to say a rational escape, but perhaps a leap of faith out of out of the confines of the society and and the structure you live in to go beyond that. And perhaps that is a solution to
1: that problem if you get what I mean. Yeah. I think it's it's a very difficult issue of, <laughs> of of whether your culture really really determines your your entire range of possibilities or whether you can get beyond the culture. And I think I would want to clarify a bit that there's maybe a difference between society and culture in a sense mm-hmm. that society is this this thing which it, it really assigns you one belief and, and it, it really it limits the possibilities presented to you in culture into this one dominant narrative, as, as we look, like to say right now. Uh, and it, and Heidegger calls, calls that the day or, or the one, depending on which translator you choose. So somehow you're, you yourself in ordinary life is a part of the one and and the one the one is this i guess this this unity of all like all all the cultural all the societal beliefs and and the mainstream beliefs or or the main trends the, the the dominant i guess the the fad at the time the the things that is imposed upon you from the culture and which it's very hard for you to escape, and somehow it is yourself who is also also contributing to to this one. And the scary thing about the one, in Heidegger's view, is that when you when you follow the opinions that's assigned to you in uh, by your by your society by the one, then there's no responsibility left. There's no one behind the one because if you say one does that, what one uh, one does that. One does this. It, there's no, there's no person behind it. It's, it's just this big mass of, of, of irresponsibility, if, if you get what I mean.
0: Yeah, in, I, in, I, I, in, in contrast
1: with the culture, and, I think, I think we, I, I, don't really want to argue about whether we can't, we can get out of our culture because that's, that's just, I think, I think too difficult of a, of, of a thing to, to debate, uh, right now. But Heidegger would say that somehow we the culture presents us with possibilities that goes beyond what believes society uh, assigns us with. Mm-hmm. And we we somehow have to go, go go into the depths of culture and maybe that's why we need to read the history of philosophy or, or read Read a lot of literature, not only contemporary literature, but also uh, literature that comes from a long time before. Why we should study the, the the canonical texts? Why we should read read the Bible again and again? Perhaps compared to maybe reading one after another of the an interpretation of the Bible by someone else, since interpretation is always doing violence to the to the actual text. Mm-hmm. And, Definitely. And I, I think also related to your previous point about you you talking about how your your channel is dealing with i guess didn't the whether God is really necessary and also uh, you, you've been posting a lot of content on Nietzsche recently and I think it's it's somehow a, a very admirable thing to do for because for for one to wrestle with uh with Wrestle with a thinker and take seriously a thinker who disagrees vehemently with with your own belief is something that we, we can we can all learn a bit from. That no no matter whether you completely agree completely agrees with someone else's critique or whether you you believe that you have an answer to it by by acquainting yourself with someone with a, another viewpoint and by wrestling with it you, you you can somehow come out with a more profound understanding of of what you believe and why you believe it than than before and that's one thing i was
0: thinking about recently as well it's like i've always felt that i perhaps emphasized or like related more to nietzsche than Dostoevsky in some weird sense perhaps because one thing, I think Nietzsche was misrepresented a lot, and I think a lot of my channels who try to do Nietzsche justice or at least present the most reasonable interpretation of him. And of course, interpretations don't do the right to justice, but at least try to spread awareness about how he shouldn't be as often misrepresented as, as he is. And, and and partially because I, I feel for him, I think, I think Nietzsche's right in 90% of the things like his ideas on the slave morality, his ideas about the twisted and the fallen nature of the church. I mean, apart from his ideas about guilt and sin, which I think are directly wrong. I think most of his critiques are correct, but just aimed at a different version of the church and something that I don't hold into. I mean And that's, and that's something I want to share. in. And, and, and perhaps in some sense, I felt that perhaps discovering Dostoevsky was Nietzsche's last chance of being saved in some sense. It's the, it's what could have saved him from his ultimate insanity and, Perhaps reading Dostoevsky could have saved him. He just didn't choose to live it out as well. If you get know what I mean, it. That's something that I was thinking about nature recently, and I mean, I guess we could end this stream off on the fact. That if you have anything more to say, is please go ahead. But I mean, I guess we could end it off on a slight discussion about our favorite books. If you get what I mean.
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, sh- sh- do you want to start or? Sure. Yeah.
0: How uh, I-, I think my favorite book is. I mean, I've gone on a few people's streams, and when I say it's not the Bible, they are like, wait, what? But I mean, I have to say it's The Idiot, I think it's by uh, Dostoevsky. I think that's definitely, a, that's definitely a fascinating thing. If you know I mean, it's it just goes to show, I think, everything that is good in Dostoevsky. It talks about the problem of nihilism. It brings forth that. It brings forth the need of Christ. I think the beauty of Christ as well. And the idea that you might be a Christian, and by being a Christian, you might get hated by the world, that that's definitely a case it might be misunderstood. But you have to keep on fighting, you have to keep on loving and forgiving, like Mushkin. And that's something that you want to work towards. It's that ideal, which I think is developed beautifully in The Idiot.
1: How about you? Okay. I think I have a lot of favorite books. <laughs> I, think. I think I'll take this chance to also convince you. I, I may I may have to list quite a lot more books than one, but I'll, I'll take this chance also to convince you to maybe read some of these books. So maybe I I'll, I'll separate them from from novels and and philosophy books. In terms of in terms of novels, I think my the, my first the first novel that really made me made me start to write fiction that I've written a bit beforehand is David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I think I have ranted a lot. I have talked a lot to you about this book. It's it's incredibly thick. <laughs> I think it's it's 1000 it's 1. 1.5 times the words of the brothers. So it it's, it's definitely a it, it definitely takes a long time to dig through. But what David Foster Wallace was trying to trying to present there is This kind of profound loneliness that comes out of uh, America's society, no matter what I don't want to use the word consumerism or or capitalism, but a kind of a kind of inability to to relate to other people and inability to love to to experience. To to experience the divine sometimes because actually David Foster Wallace also really likes Dostoevsky I think there's a kind of common thread throughout all of my favorite writers and they they all they all read Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky is one of uh, the writers that I like too and yeah yeah one of them is Infinite Jest it's it's a huge volume uh, I think I think you you really have to commit yourself. To to reading it. Maybe, at least take like maybe one hour a day to, to try to slowly grind through the volume. It, it would take around, I guess, 40 hours. But but just because of its pure size, it, it's really fun to read. Until, until the, the start is really fun. It, it's a bit of a slog in the middle and a slog at the end but it, it's really it really it's changes kind of like running way. a marathon then <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's running a marathon okay it, it's it's suffering it's suffering throughout but after you come out of the marathon it the marathon changes you in, in some way another book uh, recently uh another novel would be kafka uh, kafka's the trial much shorter than infinite jest it's and kafka's the trial i think it's it's almost profoundly christian or it's it has some profound christian or at least jewish ideas that is incorporated in a, the modern world i won't I, I won't want to spill too much from the novel but the trial is about this person called joseph k who who in, in this in a society with this very strange trial system where in a trial they don't tell you why you're guilty they they, they they sentence you it's a very very long bureaucratic system no one knows what's going on even the person trialing you don't know don't know what you're guilty for and then and then he's he at first at the start he doesn't take seriously the the trial and then at the end and then slowly he realizes the seriousness of the whole thing and it is this sudden ending where uh, okay I, I won't spoil it but it, it's, it's it's like all of novel uh, all of Kafka's novels it's unfinished but somehow I think it's being unfinished adds a flavor of mysteriousness to the entire thing that makes it even even better. Uh, even though I'm not sure whether Kafka would would have improved the whole thing if he could have finished it. And another one, I think Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov definitely. And people who watch your channel probably already know about it. And I guess these three are my are my favorites. F- favorites, fiction, and instead in terms of philosophy, uh, Nietzsche definitely uh, the things I've talked about. But something new I, I've been talking about are and Heidegger I, a lot, a lot on uh, in the session. And for people who's brave enough, I recommend you to tackle Heidegger's Being and Time. It is, it is very difficult to read. I have to say, like incredibly difficult, but. It's, it took, I think it took me twice twice as long, twice as, long as reading Infinite Jest to finish being on time. I, I spent like four hours every day for like an entire month to actually getting the whole volume finished. But it's extremely rewarding if you're willing to put in, to the, put, put in, the, put in the work because Heidegger is envisaging this kind of profound reworking of Western metaphysics to to eliminate the subject object uh, dualism of of Descartes into this the this uh, he he calls it being in the world so and and what being in the world is you can only find it out from reading Being and Time and it's it's very profound the very interesting thing with Heidegger's book is that he he not only gives you ontology, but he was he was influenced by Kierkegaard. So he he also gives you a kind of I, I wouldn't want to use the word existentialist, but a proto existentialist, much more f- profound than Sartre. I think uh, ethics or or a kind of non ethics that you, you can use. Another one would be Hannah Arendt's, I think it would be two volumes, but paired together. One is called the human condition, and another is called the life of the mind. The life of the mind. She didn't finish because uh, she she had, she had she had a heart attack after finishing. I guess uh, two thirds of the two thirds of the thing. So the human condition and the life of the mind are sort of companion volumes, and they're examining two sides of human life. The human condition examines the human life of action. She. she, she she distinguishes between three types of action, uh, no, 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 not action. The human life of act. It's a vita activa, okay? I, she uses the Latin phrase vita activa, and in the vita activa are action, labor, and work. These three, these three huge things, where where most of the vita activa, the active life, uh, subsumes under. And then she has the life of the mind, which. It, which talks about the vita contemplativa, which is the the mental life, the life of the mind. There she separates out three different faculties: thinking, judging, and willing.
0: I think his Wi-Fi. That.
1: <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> so, which word did I cut out?
0: <laughs> After you said the vita activa for I don't know which time, but yeah, just I think it's all right. Okay,
1: okay, okay. The human condition talks about the vita activa, and then there's the life of the mind, which is about the vita contemplativa, which is the life of the mind in Latin. And uh, she talks about judging, willing, and thinking; these three main faculties of the mind. And she just analyzes it. And what I really love about Arant is uh, she writes in a very lucid way. Okay, he's just completely disconnected
0: now. <laughs> he's just gone. <laughs> he's just gone now.
1: <laughs> I got. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think my. I don't think my wife, I likes Hannah Arndt. Yes. <laughs> anyway, okay, I'll, I'll do the last attempt. <laughs> at, yeah, at introducing Hannah Arndt, okay. <laughs> she, Hannah Arndt writes in this very lucid way. She's, she, I think she's different to Heidegger in this regard. Although it's, I, I guess it's just gossip, but Arndt and Heidegger had a love affair in like the 19, 1910s, in the nineteen twenties, because Arndt was a student of Heidegger's. and then they started having this love affair. Even though Heidegger already had, uh, had wife and children, and then and Arndt decided to break the relationship because she wanted to devote herself to philosophy, and she felt like Heidegger was wasting too much of her time. <laughs> but this aside, okay, and Arndt writes writes very well, even though she she writes in long sentences, very long sentences because her native language is German, and then she she switched to writing English at like a uh, way when she's like thirty years old after running out of germany from uh, from Hitler and then and then coming over to America, emigrating, et cetera. And also, what I love about Hannah Arndt is that she she gives you very, very fresh perspectives on all kinds of thinkers. From from Kierkegaard to Marx to to Socrates and Plato uh, and Aristotle and she she explains especially Aristotle and Plato because before I, I don't I, I don't really think I I don't really like their work so well, I find I find it quite boring especially Aristotle <laughs> he's, he's sort of just categorizing and categorizing and not not doing anything with it but Hannah Arendt renders him very readable in a very great way. And also she, she she, has a sort of, I guess a lot of Christian heritage behind her. her she's very well versed in St. Augustine. Her doctoral thesis is on St. Augustine. And he, he also, you've done scrotus a lot. And, and she, she's very well versed on Kant. <laughs> this is an, an unbelievable part of her biography. And I guess this is one of the things that that ar- <laughs> my my jealousy. She she started reading Kant when she was fourteen. Okay, <laughs> she started reading the Critique of Pure Reason when she was fourteen. Just <laughs> just casually reading and reading Kant from from her father's library. And yeah, and if you're interested in Hannah Arendt, there's a very good inter- interview on on YouTube. Just search Hannah Arndt interview. I think it's it's from Zer Person, and then you can just find it. It's, it's very good.
0: If you're interested in uh, Hannah Arndt's, uh Kafka and Heidegger, make sure you go check out Thinker's Kitchen, which is Warren's uh, YouTube channel. Yes, please. Uh, you can check it out and hit the like and subscribe button. As I've said, I hope you've enjoyed this stream. We've talked a lot about the slave morality, Jordan B. Peterson. We've talked also about how our views of Christianity have changed and thought and all these interesting, cool stuff. And also, these will also be coming out on my podcast called Dostoyevsky and Us. So if you guys want to check out my Dostoyevsky stuff or you're out and about and just can't have time to watch his videos, just go check out Dostoyevsky and Us. It will really help you out. And also go check out Warren's channel. Like always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Absolutely. Anytime, just let me know and I'll happily have you on the channel. So everyone, God bless. Like always, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.
1: Thanks, John.